0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles in the ninth chapter and the fourth verse, the fourth verse in the ninth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? We come back once more to a consideration of this great and epochal event, namely the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Some of us who meet here regularly have been considering it together on the four previous Sunday evenings. We come back to it then the fifth time. And let me say again that our reason in doing this is that we may understand some of those first elementary principles with regard to the Christian life, and especially as to how one ever becomes a Christian. We are not particularly concerned with the dramatic character nor with the dramatic incidents in connection with the conversion of this great man. They are not vital, they are not essential. That isn't my opinion, that is the teaching of the Apostle himself, as it is clearly the teaching of the Bible. It isn't the accompaniments that matter. It isn't the occasional concomitants that count. It's the thing itself. And the thing itself is always the same. There are certain elements that are common to every case of conversion. There are certain things, I would go further, that are absolutely vital and essential to true conversion and to our becoming truly Christian. And we have the authority of this great man himself for saying that what happened to him and in him is a kind of pattern and example which can be held before others. He says that himself, you remember, in writing to Timothy in that first epistle, in the first chapter... From verse 12 to verse 16, he says that, that this, he says, happened to me that I might be a pattern, a pattern of God's patience amongst other things, in all them who are going to believe. So I say, we, we come to this and we look at it together. Now, the way I believe, the best way of looking at it is something like this. Here is a man whom we know as the Apostle Paul, this amazing man, this astounding personality. Many of us refer to him as the great apostle, Oh we needn't quarrel about that. Whether we should have our favorites or not amongst the apostles, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Certainly there was no greater man than this. Has the world ever seen a greater man than this? Here is this great man, this mighty apostle, this incomparable preacher and evangelist, this outstanding servant of God. That's how we think of him. And yet, you see, we are told here, and we've looked at it in other passages of Scripture, that there was once a time when he wasn't like this. He was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, Here we are told in this very chapter that he went off from Jerusalem in the direction of Damascus, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. He so hated Christ. He so hated Christianity. He so hated Christians. The very anticipation of damaging them and hurting them and massacring gave him a fiendish kind of delight, breathing out threatenings and slaughter. There he was. That was his condition. And uh, as we have seen, that was his condition in spite of the fact that he knew the facts concerning Jesus of Nazareth. He had heard about him. He knew all about him in a sense. That was why he was able to say, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. It wasn't an ignorance of the whole story of Christianity. He knew it. And he knew other things. He knew about Stephen, the martyr Stephen. He was present on that occasion. He'd heard his address. He'd seen the face shining. He'd seen him dying. He was aware of all these things, and yet here he is, a bitter, violent opponent, has no use for it, indeed regards it as blasphemy, and was fully persuaded in his own mind that he was pleasing God by trying to put an end to it and exterminating such people off the face of the earth. Well, there he was, a non-Christian. And then, you see, he became a Christian. Now, we've spent most of our time so far in considering the causes of Paul's remaining as a non-Christian for so long. We won't go into this again. I would hurriedly remind you that we saw certain general causes. And then in particular, he has emphasized his ignorance. His real ignorance of the truth of the things which he thought he knew. And then last Sunday night, you remember that state of unbelief in which he was. I obtained mercy, says Paul, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Well, there he is. And still, he is not a Christian for those various reasons but now we come to the turning point having looked at the things that held him back we are now beginning to look at how he changed from that position to the other we saw that this condition which we describe as conversion is a very profound change a complete change everything becomes different well now how did it happen how does it happen Well, here I say, as we begin to look into this great story as it's unfolded in this ninth chapter of this book of the Acts, we shall see how it happened to this man. Let me say again, let's not be held too much by the dramatic quality, but let's get at the principles behind, for these are constant. These are always the same. You'll find them in every case in the New Testament. You'll find them as you read the lives of the saints throughout the centuries. It doesn't matter what century it happens in. It doesn't matter where it happens. It doesn't matter the type of person to whom it happens. There are certain things that are always present and are therefore basic. I regard them as the bare essentials, the irreducible minimum. And now I say we begin to look at these things. What is it that happens to a man when he gets out of a state of unbelief and ignorance and becomes a Christian? That's the great thing, the vital thing, isn't it? Again, may I say that I'm calling attention to all this on the assumption that I'm speaking to those who either know what it is or who else are longing for it and desiring for it. And to whet your appetite, if you're not longing for it already, my friend, let me remind you again of this man and his character. Wouldn't you like to be like this man? Wouldn't you like to be a master of circumstances? Wouldn't you like to be able to say, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content? Wouldn't you like to be able to look into the face of the last enemy and to say, to me, to live is Christ, and to die is going? Because it means going to be with Christ, which is far better. That's what this man became. That was his life. That was his experience. The master of life and all its attendant circumstances. One of the greatest benefactors that the human race has ever known. There he is. How did he become that? How did this change take place from that awful blasphemy and persecution to this astounding condition in which we find him in the pages of the New Testament. Well, let me just note the steps this evening. I'm simply making an analysis of what we are told here. Here are the things that I regard as being absolutely essential. The first thing is, and the most vital thing of all, the intervention of God. He desired of the... um, Authorities in Jerusalem, letters to Damascus and to the synagogues, that if any be found in this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And off he goes with all his commission and all his authority from Jerusalem. And listen to it. Look again at this extraordinary way in which the scripture puts these things. The way it can put it all in just a word almost And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. I say, God intervenes. Now, let us put this from the experimental standpoint this evening. Uh, Someone may say to me, yes, you say God intervenes, but how do I know that Uh, What does that mean uh, to me uh, in my experience? Well, let me put it like this, if you like. Uh, One of the first things that uh, happens to a man who thus is passing from unbelief to becoming a Christian is that he becomes aware of the fact that something is happening to him. I say in the case of Paul, of course, it was with all this dramatic suddenness and intensity. Suddenly, there shined this light round about him. Well, now, it isn't always like that, and that isn't essential. It needn't be sudden, it needn't be dramatic. It can be slow, it can be almost unperceived, and yet, as certainly as it's happening, one is aware of the fact that something is happening and something is taking place. Now, again, you see, we come back to the apostle's own account of this. He says, I'm a pattern and an example. All right, it's like being in a dark building and suddenly the switch is put on and the light is there. Well, now then, but the light doesn't always come on like that. Oh, I say there are times, you'll find it in the history of the saints, when there was nothing with this dramatic suddenness and intensity, but they were just aware of the fact that something was happening to them. Something that they'd never known before. Something that they'd never experienced before. And yet, do as they will and as they like, they're just conscious that they're being dealt with. That something is taking place. Let's put it like that quite explicitly. It's the consciousness of the fact that something is being done to us and that we are, I say, being dealt with. It's very difficult to put this into adequate language. But it is this sense or sensation almost that we are being manipulated, if you like, that we are no longer free in a sense that we once thought we were free. Uh, We are being surrounded. Something is taking place around and about us. There is a consciousness of some A new experience, some new dimension almost has come in, and we are now in this whole position and condition that something seems to have come into our life. We don't know quite what it is, but it's there. And I say the answer to it all is that it's God intervening. Oh, I've often quoted those words of Wordsworth because I sometimes think they come perhaps nearer to it than anything else that I can think of. He wasn't talking about this. Uh, he, with his particular views, uh, was talking rather about nature, you remember, but he puts it like this. I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joys of elevated thought. What's he mean? Well, uh, he's felt the presence and he's been disturbed. He's done nothing. Something's happened to him. He's taken hold of He's possessed. He's taken up. Now that's it. God, uh, through Christ, was here dealing with the apostle on the road to Damascus. And he does it to all who become Christian. And they just have this vague awareness at first. That there is something taking place. They have this consciousness. That they're being manipulated, as it were, and being surrounded by someone, something, entering into some new experience, which they've never known hitherto. This is absolutely essential, my friend, because it's always God dealing with us. The terms we saw on the first occasion when we looked at this matter insist upon that. If it is a new birth, if it's a new creation, as if it's a regeneration, well, it is of necessity. And you're aware of a kind of atmosphere of this uh, surrounding by someone something, and you're being dealt with. Something's taking place in you and to you. But let me hurry on and make it still more plain when I put it like this. The thing I really want to emphasize uppermost, perhaps this evening, the personal element and aspect of all this. Here it is, and that's why I take my, this fourth verse as my text tonight. He fell to the earth, and heard a I, saying unto him, Saul, fall. That's it. The personal element. Now let me try to analyze this. The first way I'd like to put it would be this. It's a man becoming conscious of the fact that he is now an object and no longer the subject. Now, this is popular terminology today, isn't it? Uh, This is uh, one of the, the most popular ways and views of handling this matter, this encounter. Well, it's perfectly right. Becoming a Christian does mean a divine encounter. A man encountering God and God encountering men. A meeting takes place. There's a relationship, I-thou. Two persons are in contact. That's it. That's the essence of Christianity. And it's an address, you see. For the first time in his life, Saul of Tarsus was conscious of being addressed. Before that, he had done everything. It was he who talked and so long. But now he's being addressed. He's being spoken to. Soul, soul, the word comes to him. He as a person is involved. And the position is no longer that he, the subject, the soul of Tarsus is looking at some object, or religion. No, no, he's the one who's being examined, as it were. He's the object, no longer the subject. Or to put it still more directly, let me put it like this. When this happens, one is no longer in the position that it's a matter of my being interested in religion or Christianity and investigating it from a detached external position, no, I'm here now and I'm being addressed, I'm, I'm being spoken to, I'm being surrounded, I'm being dealt with, something is taking place and happening to me. It's an entire reversal of the old position. You see it also clearly in the case of Saul of Tarsus, don't you? Just picture him, try to read his mind as he left uh, the city of Jerusalem with his commission and all his authority, and can't you hear him as he talks to himself and as he uh, talks to himself about what he's going to do and how he's going to put an end to this Christianity. He's full of his own ideas and they were perfectly sound and right ideas. He was doing a great work and a great work for God. And he's full of this and he's talking to it. And he's so active and busy, he doesn't think of anything else. He's full of himself and his own activity and his own ideas. And suddenly he's arrested, he's apprehended. That's his own word. He's laid of them, And he's addressed This personal element becomes tremendously prominent, and the whole position of detachment disappears. Then let me take it a step further by putting it like this. The next step is that instead of talking and expressing my opinions, I am made to listen. Oh, these things sound so simple, don't they? And yet these are the things that happen whenever any person becomes a Christian. The whole trouble with most people who are not Christian is that they never listen. That's why they never hear. You see, we all come into this world and start in this life imagining that we know all about Christianity. And we are very young indeed when we all start expressing our opinions about Christianity. We know all about it. We've never read the New Testament, of course, but that's immaterial. We've never read read a book on church history that makes not the slightest difference. We know, and especially in the 20th century. We know all about it. So what is Christianity? Well, Christianity is something for me to demolish, something for me to denounce and to expose and to make a joke about. I know all about it, and I'm doing the talking, and I'm speaking about Christianity, and I'm saying what I think and what I'm going to do. Then, my friend, you find yourself in the position that you're listening And it's the most glorious thing that can ever happen to you. It's the best sign that you're on the way to becoming a Christian if indeed you've not already become one. The man who is breathing out the threatenings and the slaughter and expressing his opinions is silenced and he's listening and someone's saying, fall! And the eloquent speaker becomes an auditor. Oh, my dear friends, I'm not here to make a psychological analysis of conversion or of the case of Saul of Tarsus. I'm here to speak to you directly. I've no time for theoretical interest. These matters are of life and death, importance and value to every one of us. So I ask a simple, direct, plain, blunt question. Have you yet got to the listening stage? Have you begun to listen to it? It's speaking, it speaks out of the word. Do you come to the word as the critic in order to find the flaws and the errors and the things you're talking about and in order to expose it all? Or are you suddenly driven backwards and it stands out and it comes up to meet you and it's looking at you and it's speaking to you and you're conscious of being addressed and you've become the auditor. Which is it? There can be no question, there's no argument about this. Every man who's become a Christian has passed through this stage of silence. When you've been apprehended and arrested and pulled up and made to think for a moment and you're done and you just listen and you're aware of these things coming to you. He became silent. He became for the first time the auditor. Or, to put it in still another way, let me put it to you like this. The voice came and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And for the first time, I think, in his life, these things became to Saul of Tarsus personal concern. Here again is something I'm sure that we all have known something of in experience. It's almost incredible, but it is surely the masterpiece of Satan, that he can make us consider these things, even these things, in an impersonal manner. We all assume the position of the judge on the bench when it becomes a question of Christianity. Oh, I think I've put it to you once before. That perfect statement of this position I'm trying to outline... The words were uttered by Lord Melbourne, who was uh, Queen Victoria's first Prime Minister. He put it like this. He said, you know, things are coming to a pretty pass if religion's going to start being personal. What's religion? Well, of course, religion is something that's uh, far away from the person. Religion, well, it's a sort of institution. It's a part of the British heritage. Part of Western civilization. It's what is religion? Well, it's a great background to life. It's something mainly cultural. You can divide it up in various ways. It's got a great philosophy. It's got an element of pageantry. So that if you've got a great civic occasion or a state occasion, well, of course, religion comes in. It adds a sort of final touch. It's a kind of show that you put on, as it were. Well, not only that, it's, it's something very interesting to, to reason about and to argue about. It is, after all, a view of life, and there are various views of life. You can read about Christianity, you can read about the other great religions of the world, you can go back and read Greek philosophy. Now, these are all very interesting, because life is rather problematical. And things are not easy, and we're all surrounded by difficulties. And it's interesting, therefore, to consider any theory or proposition or point of view which may have something to contribute to this tremendous problem which confronts us. And this is one of them. But, of course, uh, it it, it doesn't say anything about me personally. And uh, When you're discussing these things, you must never become personal. That's uh, the height of bad manners apart from anything else. Uh, when, When a thing is general, it mustn't be made particular, And when it's for everybody, it's not in particular for me. So we go right away back, we take our seats in the gallery, or on the bench, as I say, and we look down upon an arena. Well, yes, of course, there are certain phenomena in in connection with religion. And some people talk about being converted and a great change in their lives. And we investigate it. It's particularly interesting to look on and to see exactly what happened. As I said last Sunday night, is this some sort of psychological complex? Is it some sort of disease? Was this a manifestation of epilepsy in the the case of Paul? Now, how interesting it is to talk about all that and to discuss it. Oh, yes, but while I'm doing all that, you see, I remain the non-Christian. I'm in the state of unbelief. That was Saul of Tarsus before this thing happened to him. But here he's addressed, Saul, Saul, you man, uh, we're discussing you, not somebody else. And he's facing himself for the first time. Christianity is first and foremost personal. It isn't your views nor mine that matter. It's you yourself. Christianity is about you, about your life, about your destiny, about your immortal soul. It speaks to us one by one. You can't be saved in countries or in families. That's the lie of the devil. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. It's individual. It's personal. And for the first time, the apostle, this man Saul of Tarsus, who became the apostle Paul, had to face these things from his own personal end and his own personal angle. The relevance of these things to him. Now, you see, up until this point, Saul had been the great advocate of Judaism. And we all like being advocates. We take up a case, you see. But when I take up a case, I'm not involved. It's the case. It's outside me. The barrister takes up the case in court, he's eloquent, you think he feels it, he loses his temper, but he's really not interested personally at all. He's gripped by the job for the time being, he's moved by his own eloquence as he defends his client, or as he cross-examines another, but of course he's not in it, personally he's not engaged at all. It's the enthusiasm for the case. Now that was all of Tarsus, you see, but here he himself was put at the very center. It was all about him. He was being dealt with. He, I say, has become the object and no longer the subject. For the first time, he himself as a person became directly related to these things. Oh, my dear friend, I don't apologize for asking some simple questions as we go along tonight. Have you really faced these things personally? Have you realized where you yourself come into it in all these matters? Have you realized that you really can't be a spectator where God is concerned? That there's no such thing as a detachment. That scholarship, as I said last Sunday night, makes no difference at this point at all. We are all here in this world and we are passing through it and we're all personally involved. So, oh, Where do you stand personally? Relative to these things. That's inevitable. And then I go on to my last point under this personal aspect, which is this. There takes place this dawning consciousness. That what really matters is not what I think of him, but what he thinks of me. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. What's that mean? It means this, that his sole concern there was with his opinions of Jesus of Nazareth. And he wasn't slow to express them. And he was very sure of them. And that to him was the big thing and the important thing. Suddenly the whole thing is reversed again. And he sees that what really matters is what that blessed person he's just seen there in the heavens Thinks of him. Oh, these steps are clear and obvious, aren't they? You see, you become object rather than subject. You listen instead of speaking. You're involved in it yourself. It's not detached. It's direct and personal. And above all, I say, you're aware of judgment coming upon you instead of you expressing your judgment. Soul, so. My dear friend, have you ever heard it coming to you like that? Have you heard yourself being addressed? Are you aware of the fact that God is dealing with you and is speaking to you? No man can be a Christian without that. It's impossible. You can't accept Christianity as a philosophy. Of course, you can do that, but that doesn't make you a Christian. To merely give an intellectual assent to these things, it's not enough. It is really and truly an encounter with God. It's a meeting. Not with this dramatic intensity, perhaps. You don't see Christ. Paul saw him. That made him an apostle because he saw literally the risen Lord, the face of the Lord on the road to Damascus. You and I don't have that. But we meet, we know, we have felt the presence, we know he's dealing with us, and we've known that he's dealing with us individually and directly, personally. And then, of course, I go on to the next step, which is conviction of sin. The interruption. The awareness of the other. The person and the personal involvement. And that leads, of course, to the conviction of sin. Listen. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? What does this mean? Well, again, let me break it up into its simplest components. The first thing this means, of course, is that I come to a realization that God knows me. This great God I've thought of and spoken about and have argued, this kind of philosophic ex, this great creator, the absolute, the eternal, somewhere in the distant heavens, who's fashioned the cosmos and who's interested in the whole world. I awaken to the dread, the almost terrible realization that he knows me individually, Saul, Saul. Have you had such a meeting with God? Have you had such an awareness of God's personal, intimate knowledge of you? Indeed, I go on to emphasize that Saul of Tarsus not only discovered here that God knew him personally, he discovered that he knew all about his life. And that's a thing, of course, about which the Bible speaks everywhere. It's the last thing man comes to know. We are so clever at uh, eluding one another and in fooling one another that we fondly imagine that we do exactly the same with God. And we imagine that God does not know all about us. We imagine that we can go on doing things and that nothing matters, nothing happens. But Saul of Tarsus here discovered that he knew all about him. And no man becomes a Christian without realizing that God knows all about him. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Nothing is hidden from his sight. The psalmists, you see, are full of this sort of thing. They try to get away from him. They take their flight, as it were, to heaven. He's there. They make their bed in hell and lo He's there. They go to the east and to the west. They try to get away from him, but they can't get away from him. God's everywhere, and he knows all about us. It's a vital part of this process. God knows, I say, every single detail of your life. There's nothing about you that is not known to God. And it's a man coming to the realization of this, who is a man who's always on the way to becoming a Christian. Suddenly the things that he himself has forgotten come back to him. They've been brought back to him by God. The things he's explained away are again put in front of him. And he can't get rid of them. It's God doing its conviction of sin. And take it still further and it comes to this. That God brings home to me my sin and its enormity. That was one of the things that happened to Saul of Tarsus on that road, wasn't it? It made him see himself as he really was, and it made him see the things that he'd been doing as they really were. The breathing out of the threatenings and the slaughter, the way he'd given his vote against these people, his desire to exterminate them. Suddenly he sees these things as they are for the very first time. He'd never seen it before. The wrongness of it all, the ignorance of it all, the arrogance of it all, the foulness of it all. Oh, he's eloquent in many places about this. We've looked already at the 7th of Romans. There it is, isn't it? The proud, self-satisfied, self-justifying Pharisee comes to see that in me, that is to say in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. You begin to see yourself and your life. Now you've been evading and dividing yourself the whole of your life hitherto. We've all done it. We all tried to do it. And we all still go on doing it. Everything but face ourselves honestly. But when this encounter takes place, you must see yourself. He holds a mirror up before you. Have you really faced yourself and your life? Look back across your record. Are you pleased or are you displeased? Can you really justify everything that's in it? Are you proud of it all? Things done, things said, things imagined, things thought, the spirit, the desires, all these things. Suddenly this man was face to face with them all and he saw them and he hated them and he was amazed at them. The wrongness, the ignorance, the arrogance, I say. And especially when I go on and put it like this. All that in its relationship to God. The thing that he never got over was this. That the words uttered by the Lord were, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He thought he was persecuting Christians. He's told he's persecuting Christ. All that he's been doing is not only wrong, but it's terrible when it's put into the relationship with him. And that is the essence of the conviction of sin. What makes sin, sin is not so much that we do things that are wrong, my friends. What makes sin, sin is that we do such things against God. That's the thing that came home to David, wasn't it? Though he was guilty of adultery and of murder, what he actually said was, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. It's a terrible thing to commit adultery. It's a terrible thing to murder a man. But there's something infinitely more terrible that I've done all this against my maker and creator, the one who fashioned man at the beginning and made him in his own image and set him there perfect in the garden. That sin, that it's directed against God. That it's rebellion against God, that it's transgression of God's law, that it's violating God's principle, that it's asserting myself and my will against the holy will of God. For the conscience warned me before I did it all, but I defied it and I denied it, and I thereby defied and denied God. Why persecutest thou me? You can't be a Christian without being convicted of sin. And conviction of sin means that you realize that you've wronged God. That you've raised yourself up against him. That you haven't glorified him and lived to his glory. That he hasn't been dominating your life and that you haven't realized that he's so glorious and so wonderful that the highest privilege that will ever come to you will be just to serve him humbly and to look into his face and to do his will. You've done the exact opposite. Isn't that true, my friends? Isn't that all mankind by nature? God-haters, God-deniers, God-defiers. A floating self, putting our will in the center, and doing such things, and suddenly we come to see it all. Conviction of sin. And that in turn, of course, leads to the next thing, which is this trembling. Now in your revised versions there in the pews, you haven't got this part of the sixth verse, which I have here in the authorized. I read, and he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? We needn't go into the way in which that's absent from your versions. Let me put it to you like this. There is not the slightest question but that this is perfectly true. Whether it ought to be in the text at that point or not is immaterial. It undoubtedly was true to the experience of the apostle. He was trembling. Who is this man who's trembling? He's the great Pharisee, the great authority, the man who knows all about the law, the man who's more religious than anybody else. He's trembling and astonished. What's the matter with him? Oh, it's the inevitable result of everything that I've just been saying. It's a man awakening to the fact that his soul and his whole condition are in a desperately dangerous plight. No man believes in a Savior until he's seen himself as lost and in need of salvation. And that is salvation. We need to be saved from what? Well, from the wrath of God. Those are the scriptural terms, the terms used by our blessed Lord himself. It's a man coming to realize that by living the life he's lived and behaving as he has behaved, that he's not only been sinning against God, but that he's been placing his soul in jeopardy. And this man, seeing that face and having some conception of the glory of God, sees that he's not only been wrong, but that he's been a fool, that his foolhardiness, that he's been pitting himself against the absolute and the eternal God who could blast him out of existence in a second. And he trembles in terror and alarm at his own destiny, at his own future. Have you ever been concerned about yourself? Have you ever worried about yourself? Have you ever spent an evening with yourself, as it were, talking to yourself and saying this? I know that in me there is that which is immortal. Dust thou art to dust, returnest, was not spoken of the soul. I can't conceive myself as non-existent. And here I am, I'm moving through this world, and day by day I get older and older, and the whole thing is absolutely uncertain and contingent. At any moment I may go out of it, and where do I go? And what happens to me then? Have you ever spoken to yourself like that? My friend, it's the truth about you. You are getting older every day. And you've got to die. You're going to die. What then? Now, I say that a man who becomes a Christian is a man who has faced that and has become desperately concerned about it. He's a man who says to himself, what if I die tonight? Well, what then? What happens to me? And he's alarmed. He begins to tremble. Fear and trembling is an essential part of it. And it's unavoidable the moment we realize these things. And if you've never yet trembled, it's because you know nothing about God and you don't know the truth about yourself either. For the moment we know something of God and see what we are and what we've been. We must realize that we are under the wrath of God and in the most terribly dangerous condition a soul can ever be in. That was what happened to this man. He became concerned. He became alarmed. His whole destiny flashed before him and he was horrified at the possibility. And that, of course, inevitably leads to the last step, which is this. He recognized him. And submitted to him, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Who is he? He's the Jesus that he'd blasphemed, that he'd hated, that he'd dismissed as an imposter. He now knows that he's the Lord of glory and he surrenders to him. The man who is denouncing him and going to exterminate him and his cause. What wilt thou have me to do, Lord? You see, a man has become desperate at this point. He realizes that he's so lost that he can do nothing about himself. He can't save himself. He can't undo what he's been doing. And one glimpse of God puts an end to that. A person who believes that by his own religion and righteousness... He can make himself fit to stand in the presence of God. Is just proclaiming his his utter ignorance of God. If you knew something about God and I with you, why we'd put our hands upon our mouths with Job and we'd put an end to all this reliance upon the filthy rags of our own self-righteousness. He says, what wilt thou have me to do? And all he wants you to do is to believe him and to believe on him and to trust yourself to him. You've acknowledged and confessed your sin and the enormity of your sin against him. You've seen it at last. And you've recognized who he is. And you hand yourself to him and you say, tell me anything you like, I'll do it. I'm at your service, I'm a helpless slave at thy feet. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. I'm helpless, I'm hopeless. I'm penniless, I'm a pauper. I'm foul, I to the fountain fly. I've nothing. What wilt thou have me to do, Lord? And he was told and he did it. He was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. And he became the mighty apostle Paul. The preacher and the proclaimer of Jesus Christ. The man who proved in Damascus that this is the very Christ. And proclaimed him and told all to believe in him. And showed them how he had come to save them from the wrath and from the law of God. That's the sequel. But this is how it took place. And this is why it took place. Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? You see, this is the terrible part of this whole subject, isn't it? That Saul of Tarsus was in that precise position all along, but he didn't know it. When he thought with himself that he ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, it was against that person he was saying it when he asked for authority to go down to Damascus to persecute and massacre the Christians, it was against that person he was doing it, but he didn't know it. He thought he knew he didn't know. The Lord was there the whole time, exactly the same. Paul was doing these things because he didn't know. And he only came to know when he heard the words Saul, Saul. And you, my friend, if you're not a Christian, are in that precise position. You don't know these things, and you're expressing your opinions. What do you think about Christianity? And why doesn't it stop war and do this and that and the other? And why doesn't God do this and that? You are speaking, and you're eloquent, and you're settling these matters. You're doing it all, and you've never stopped and you've never listened. But you know, there are the facts. And I more and more come to think of Christian preaching as just this. The business of the Christian preacher is just to be a mouthpiece of Christ and of God. And what he really is meant to do is just to utter your name. Saul, Saul. Stop a moment. Think for a minute. Do you realize what you're doing? Who are you? Well, I'm Jesus, the one you're dismissing in your clever talk, the one whose voice in the conscience you silence when you go behind a door and commit that sin, the sins that are committed in darkness and in the night. I'm the one that you're sinning against because you were made on my image at the beginning and I've come from heaven to earth and have even gone to the cross and the grave in order to deliver you out of all that that's the business of preaching just to tell you that but I'd add this to it shall I put it in the form of a question have you had this personal address so far have you heard God speaking to you directly has God spoken your name to you Have you had this consciousness that God has rarely spoken to you individually and told you that he knows all about you? Have you had this consciousness of being dealt with and God addressing you? Has your name been spoken to you? Because, my dear friend, a day is coming when your name will be pronounced. You go to the 20th chapter of the book of Revelations and there you'll read about it. The great day of judgment is coming when God will be seated upon the throne and all the people of the earth and the heavens and the sea and everywhere else, they'll all appear before him and the books will be opened. And as certainly as I stand in this pulpit at this moment and tell you that on that road to Damascus, that Saul of Tarsus heard his own name being called out from heaven, you will hear your name being called out from heaven. Your name will be called. You can't hide yourself in that crowd because God knows us one by one. There's no limit to his knowledge. He knows us individually. He'll address us by name. Our record is in the book. Everything we've done or said or thought, it's all there. He knows it all. And your name will be called out. All Saul do you hear it now? Well, if you do, do what Saul of Tarsus did, turn to him and say, "What wilt thou have me to do?" And he will give you the same old, simple reply: "Believe on me, give yourself to me, and be saved from the wrath to come. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.